The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And I trust that everybody is making their final preparations, or at this point, actually, you're doing your celebrations. Uh, we're pre-recording this program, so you should be in the throes of Christmas, as it were. And today's broadcast in honor of the holiday and in conjunction with the mystique, if you will, that's associated with this holiday is about actually the archaeology of Christmas. And um, a guest on this program is uh, an esteemed professor who has looked into this topic as one of his secondary but nevertheless profound interests. And uh, my guest is Dr. Michael Laffey, who is the Assistant Professor of Classics at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. Dr. Laffey has a uh, BA from the University of New Hampshire in Philosophy and Anthropology and Latin, and he has an MA in Greek and Latin literature from the uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, he received his doctoral degree in ancient history and Mediterranean archaeology from the University of California at Berkeley. And he actually began doing his archaeological work in his native state of New Hampshire. And his research, primary research interest, has eventually evolved into old world history and archaeology of archaic and classical Athens, with a focus on ancient Greek religion, Greek epigraphy, and world archaeology. His first book, co-authored with Dr. Flores van Eindy of the U of Utrecht University in Holland, is entitled Cult and Society in Early Athens, Ritual, State Formation, and Group Identity in Attica, uh, 1000 to 600 BCE, and it is due out next year. Uh, Dr. Laffey, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. So how does a Greek scholar and a person who is formally oriented toward the ancient civilization of the Mediterranean basin, how do you get into the Christmas uh, archaeology? And, and tell us a little bit about how your background moved you into that direction. Yeah, it's, it's actually a great question. Um, one of the things that I was interested in in general, uh, particularly with my primary research, is Greek religion. 
And so my work focuses on how rituals really worked for the ancient Greeks, how they can shape and recreate their um, social order and structure of their society, how performances can do the same. But I was also, uh, I also have a degree in anthropology, archaeology specifically, and so I'd worked quite a bit in North America. And so that allowed me to have the opportunity to teach some archaeology civilization courses. And I was really sort of struck by these large-scale monuments that take into account um, solstice and other celestial events. And so both of these things are sort of floating around in my head. And then I just sort of thought, why am I doing this just to the Greeks? Why not Christmas? Because Christmas has always sort of been this bizarre, lovely holiday to me where... You know, how did Santa get mixed up with Jesus? And why is it? What also really struck me is everybody celebrates this holiday. You know, when I think of ancient Greek festivals, we often talk about who gets to take part, who doesn't get to take part, identities wrapped up in this. But when it comes to Christmas, 95% of Americans celebrate it, but that includes 80% of all non-Christians. It's number one among the favorite holidays. Thanksgiving is second. Halloween and Fourth of July are fighting it out for third or fourth. And so (laughs) it just sort of, um, I don't know, as a side project for me, it sort of um, became sort of a fun exercise to at least do some preliminary work into it. So what we're seeing, actually, and and again, I'm I'm picking this up from a variety of things that I've read, as well as some of your introductory material, is that the origins of Christmas really go back to a couple of key variables. First of all, they predate uh, the traditional story of and and the traditional chronology of of Jesus Christ, and sure. second of all, they seem to be very very linked to ethnic traditions, and to uh, to astronomy basically the types of alignments that we've seen at Stonehenge, Woodhenge, and Cahokia in North America. That these factors uh, lend themselves to the early origins of Christmas. So why don't you uh, expound on that a little bit so that we get a sincere background on that, an authentic background to it, and then we'll uh, we'll get into the the traditional uh, background to Christmas. Sure, sure. When I tried to figure out what were the origins. Um, Just as you say, you keep going back and back and back, because what's interesting is that Christmas was originally set, December 25th, um, on the winter solstice. Now, once there was a calendar reform, um, the winter solstice date got moved to December 21st. Christmas sort of got left on December 25th, but it certainly was originally on the date of the winter solstice. And when you look back, the winter solstice since, you know, Neolithic period, once we start getting agriculture, was of huge concern um, to civilizations for a lot of reasons. And what's always sort of been striking is, is when you take a look, like you say, at some of, if you are in Britain, for example, some of the greatest early uh, megalithic prehistoric monuments are sort of taking winter solstice into account. So like you said, um, Stonehenge takes into account um, the winter solstice sunset. You also have that fantastic uh, monument, Long Meg and Her Daughters, which has these right. 69 granite stones. And So anyway, they're taking into account, um, particularly with Long Meg, um, the winter solstice sunset. There's some of those courses, like the Dorset courses in southwest England, that are taking this into account, these enormous sort of runways. Um, but also what struck me is when I was taking a look at some of those passage tombs, those fantastic passage tombs in uh, Britain, 
like in or in Ireland, Newgrange Passage Tomb, for example, is this enormous 250-foot um, across circular mound that the passage actually lights up just as the winter solstice sunrise comes in. Um, and there's a few other passage tombs that are like this, all the really big ones like Mace House and the Clava Passage Tombs. And it sort of reminded me of actually, um, uh, what is the name... Uh, Chaco Canyon. I remember I was studying Chaco Canyon for a while, and there were these um, fantastic buildings like Pueblo Bonita, which actually take into account um, the solstices um, and things like this. And so, uh, you know, right at the dawn of sort of um, monumental building, one of the things they're doing is taking into account the winter solstice. I mean, we lose the rituals, um, what exactly right, they were right. doing, right? Um, and but, Chaco has it, and so does Woodhenge over in Cahokia has a certain... Right? set of alignments as well. Are there any other countries that, that are sort of founded in the alignments and are using those alignments, the megaliths and, and, and the wood structures and, and the pits in, in, in the southwest? Is that the archaeological evidence that gets it started? Is, or do we have any other uh, bits and pieces of archaeological evidence from other cultures that would seem to signify similar things? Well, I think that's the main archaeological evidence that at least I could find for something this early. But it sort of reminds us that when we're talking about what exactly we can do archaeologically with studying winter solstice festivals and Christmas in general is, you know, as I'm sure you've encountered, when you start to study festival feasts and rituals, it's really difficult to excavate a song, you know, or a particular music, sure, of course, or a childhood of memory. And so I think in some ways we sort of get lucky that um, we have these monumental um, sort of expressions of taking into account the winter solstice. But, I mean, I would suspect that the winter solstice was central to most of these um, prehistoric societies. It's just sort of a shame that we don't know exactly what, exact, um, what they were doing. I mean, that doesn't start to become a little clearer in Europe till we get to Greece and Rome. Right, so all of a sudden we have this big gap in terms of certainly trying to arrange a chronology. It goes back thousands of years into, into megalithic times and mesolithic and, 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 and immediately subsequent times. And then, like you say, then all of a sudden we go into Aegean civilizations and we go into the Mediterranean basin. Is there a bridging chronology anywhere there or is there a bridging archaeology that, uh, that we can look at? listeners are going to find it for us. Because we don't have it. For Bronze and Iron Age Britain, for example, you'll find like these little scraps where people might say, ah, there was a sun god, and maybe you can you know, find some uh, little bits of archaeological evidence of what you might think of as a sun god. But I mean, that only sure. gets you so far. You just can say they were really interested in the sun still. I mean, it, it really sort of looks like we lose um, what the winter solstice celebrations are for a little bit there, at least um, in Europe, uh, maybe in the east. Um, I haven't studied the east or looked over there. Um, uh there, there's certainly, uh, certainly in the Mediterranean basin, it's it's a different alignment and and certainly right. it's climatic regime, and the right. solar configurations are a little bit different. So, what do we have in the Aegean? What do we have there? Anything in particular? Well, what's interesting is when you start to get to um, Greece, for example, you're not finding them arranging their buildings in a certain direction, but what you are finding actually are a number of festivals that start being associated with the winter solstice, which actually have a lot of things in common with one another, which, you know, becomes really, really interesting, for example. So in Greece, Greece, of course, um, you know, when we're talking about archaic classical period, 
you have many, many different city-states. A lot of them are having their own kind of celebrations around this time. But what's striking is that Poseidon in particular starts to become shared by many city-states, particularly in Ionia, on the west coast of Turkey, through Attica, but even in parts around Sparta. And here, Poseidon is being worshipped, but not as that, like, earthquake god or the god of the bulls and the sort of terrifying deity. But here he becomes this deity of fresh water and fertility. He becomes really associated with Demeter. And during these festivals, we start to see lots of role reversals, and you have women holding phalluses, and they're being teased by a priestess with with suggestions of promiscuity. You're allowed to behave a little bit more irresponsibly than usual. There's some contests. Bonfires are a huge part of these. Feasting beyond feasting, right, where it's, you know, feasts, um, incredible-sized feasts. And so you sort of have sex, fire, and eating, (laughs) fertility and light. And Ah. the other big festival is the Linnea, which is this Athenian festival of wild women, and they're associated with Dionysus, the god of wine. And so we have lots of festivals. I mean, sorry, we have lots of occasions of wine drinking, and there's some theater contests. So, so this is this is the equivalent of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, really. That's exactly what happens. And so, in, what's interesting is that um, megalithic uh, evidence that we were talking about. Certainly, right. they're taking into account the winter solstice. What they're doing, we're not sure, but it is interesting that monumental um, buildings to the dead are taken into account. Maybe we have birth and rebirth and things like this. But by the time we get into Europe and we start to get onto the train that we can actually start following up until our Christmas, we're already in sex, drugs, and rock and roll starting in Greece, and it's just going to roll right through Rome and on, <laughs> on down the line. So the Bacchanalian festivals basically are a precursor to this as well? Sure. That, and were, were they right. timed at the same point with the celebration of Bacchus related essentially to that uh, well, in terms of the time? Is solstice related? Well, you know, what's interesting is um, by the time we get to the Roman period, Bacchus, or the Greek Dionysus, his birthday is December 25th. Ah, I didn't know that. How so fantastic there really is that? A, and we can a draw clear a line connection right to that there? Party. Huh? That's a clear connection there, obviously. Yeah, pretty good. And it makes sense. You know, you're in the deepest, darkest part of the year, although in Greece, certainly you're not growing a lot of things, but it's not quite as cold as it would be in, you know, say, northern England. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is when you're drinking, but I think also the role reversals are pretty pretty fun to think about, and certainly this connection with light. I mean, the bonfire right, was really interesting. Right. And, and so you're really allowed to do things you weren't allowed to throughout the right. year. And probably a little bit of connection to agricultural cycles as well, especially because you have that longer growing season over there. You bet. And this is why, this is what's really interesting. So with the Greek gods, you never were Poseidon or Athena. Your particular cult, as opposed to myth, your particular cult on the ground, you had to have an epithet, you were a particular aspect of Poseidon, you were a particular aspect of Athena. And so here, this particular aspect of Poseidon that we see celebrated around the winter solstice is fertility, as you say. And so it's, again, it's, it's, as we were talking a few weeks ago, we did a program on the Mayan calendar, mm-hmm. and as it is everywhere, the, uh, the periodicity and the cycles of life 
are related to most of the major celebrations and traditional holidays. So you're showing us that, that basically the same thing is going on uh, in Christmas, certainly initially linked to the winter solstice, the alignment of the, of the stars to some degree, and now uh, pushing it into uh, Greece and Rome, then we're getting into, into a, a much more contemporary situation. And we're going to develop that discussion with Dr. Laffey uh, after we take this break. Thank you. We'll be right back. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to Our Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with a very special edition on the uh, Indiana Jones show, Myth Reality, 21st Century Archaeology. We are looking at the archaeology of Christmas on this very festive day. And uh, our special guest is Dr. Michael Laffey, who is the assistant professor of classics at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. And uh, Michael's work has basically looked at the origins of Christmas well back into the period of the megaliths and the uh, significance of the winter solstice. We discussed that earlier. How, and, and Michael, take us from that point in time while you had actually discussed the Bacchanalian festivals and the Roman and Greek festivals associated with the cycles of celebration and indicated that uh, the Greek gods, uh, which Greek god in particular had the same birthday as Christ? Um, Dionysus. Right and right and so how do yeah. we how do we even bridge conceptually that connection between the birth of of, of Christ uh, the ostensible birth of Christ uh, during the Roman period? Uh, you don't. You need to put him on that day, right? Um, so you have to put him on that day, right? Yeah, that's what we need to do. We don't need to necessarily connect him to Dionysus. And really, the, the connection here uh, has to do less with Dionysus, although he's a lot of fun, than what the Romans were actually doing at that time. Because just like what we were talking about with Greece, how you have this fertility and lights and sex and fire, the Saturnalia in Rome was, was sort of very similar. From the 17th to 23rd of December, they were celebrating a festival to Saturn, also a god of agriculture and fertility. He became wild. This festival became wildly popular in the Roman world. We actually have lots of evidence where people are dedicate, uh, decorating their homes with evergreens, with lots of feasts, drinking, revelry. Just like I was talking about with Greece, we have social rules reversed, so slaves become sure. masters and things like this. Gifts are exchanged. And so what's kind of fun is Right after that, um, Saturnalia, you get the Dies Natalis Invicti, December 25th, the birthday of Sol Invictus, um, Unconquerable Sun. And then after that celebration, you are then going to have another celebration until January 5th of the Kalends, which also has games and slaves eating with masters, more evergreen decorations, and both the Kalends and the Saturnalia up through the 4th, 3rd, 4th century AD were considered the best times of year. And so what's interesting now is how do we actually get Christmas, as we know it, the Christ, onto that particular uh, festival. So that's what really happens with the Christian makeover. Okay, so talk about the Christian makeover and talk about December 25th in particular, if there is such a reason for that, and where we get any justification for this in the sacred text, if there is one. Ah, excellent question. There's none. So if you take a look at, you know, the actual Bible and the New Testament, um, Jesus' birth is only mentioned twice. It's in the Gospels of Matthew and in Luke. Uh-huh. 
And okay. neither one of them mentioned the birth of Jesus as being in December. And what's also interesting is that neither one of those mentions of his birth actually reference anything else in the New Testament, nor does anything in the New Testament reference the actual birth. So then you have to do some detective work. And so right. then what you think is, okay, we have some shepherds outside. What does this mean? It can't be, obviously, December. And so the game is afoot. And so you can imagine all the books and articles that have been written that have said, this must have been in May, this must have been in December. Um, one AD doesn't quite work um, if you match it up with Herod, who was out of power by 4 B.C. That's so then right. people say 6 B.C., 7 B.C. But the main thing, the main point here, however, is that December 25th doesn't have a lot of textual support as a uh, birthday date for Jesus Christ. And we can't get any closer to pinpointing why it was designated. Well, we do actually have some good evidence that in the 4th century, the birth of Jesus, the Nativity, is actually affixed to December 25th. And we actually, most of the evidence seems to suggest, nobody agrees, but I think most of it, that it was actually Pope Julius I. And what he was trying to do, and so the story might go, is that he's trying to replace this birth of unconquerable sun celebration with the birth of Jesus. And what's really interesting is, you know, for the first couple hundred years, Christmas... And the birth of Jesus doesn't appear to have really been celebrated. I mean, if you're thinking in these early days, it's really Easter that's the big day, right? Right, right, right. And so we've sort of exchanged. And what's also interesting is that, you know, in these early days, Jesus is often referred to as the Son, the Son of Righteousness. He becomes, he gets a lot of Son sort of uh, descriptions attached to him, just as he's sort of replacing this Saul and Wictus festival. And it's sort right. of interesting when you get to the medieval period, when you get these 12 days of Christmas, it's sort of spanning, you know, the Saturnalia, the Saul and Wictus birthday, and the Calends. But a lot of it, I'm assuming, has something to do with the momentum behind this messianic following that didn't really pick up until later anyway, so that the need for getting detail is also sort of a little bit lagging behind and the timing is just a bit off. And it would make sense because the, the movement was really a function of developments after the death, the ostensible death and, and the ascension, right? Uh, that's a great question. So... At some point, we get the movement going, and so we really think that we should have some observation, um, some day marked for the nativity, right? Right. That's Why the then, point. though? That would be the main question. Yes, and that really is the question. And I bet that there's a lot of people out there that really want to know this, and they want to figure out how did, how did this work. And I suspect also there will be a lot of people that, uh, to say the least, would be surprised, possibly some that would be, be, even be offended by making these linkages between the, birth of, the ostensible birth of Christ and, of course, uh, whatever bacchanalian lifestyles the Romans and the Greeks uh, put forth on that particular point yeah. in time. Two, two quick points on that. Number one is that there is some pretty good evidence that when you're talking about, say, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century A.D., there was a lot of conversations among Christians on whether or not we should just ban these pagan um, rituals, or is it actually better to sort of adopt them, turn their temples into churches of saints, and incorporate it 
right? And here we're talking about this winter solstice celebration that was wildly popular. It may actually sort of work to your benefit if you can take, you know, a really, really popular um, festival and Christianize it. And this way you're not actually banning those things. But the other thing I must say is the Puritans actually would have agreed with you because they actually said, Oliver Cromwell um, made the argument, that's not in the Bible, Um, that's pretty much papist nonsense, and the <laughs> right and the um, birthday of Jesus Christ was hidden by God for a reason, so we don't celebrate it. And so this is the reason why we miss all those Christmases in the 17th century in England. I mean, it was banned, and this is why it was banned in Boston, Massachusetts, for so long. I mean, the, to have to have such a a um, full-on celebration with 95 percent of everybody celebrating Christmas is still pretty new, you know. Very yeah, that, that's true. So, so then the question becomes, really, how did the concept and how did concept and ritual evolve through the subsequent uh, time frames, let's say, progressing from the Roman into the medieval, and then subsequently you had mentioned something about the Puritans. What about the medieval time frame? The medieval time frame, archaeologically, we have nothing. I think what you're looking at is basically people who are celebrated. It looks like what we do have is some pretty good um, historical accounts starting around 1066. So we know we have Twelfth Night at that time. We actually know that English kings such as William the Conqueror and Henry, right? right? Um, So we have that kind of stuff. We know that certainly for what's been recorded in, in history, that this was a time in which we would have a big feast. And actually, what's really um, pretty fantastic about um, Christmas in the medieval period is St. Francis of Assisi in the early 13th century was the first one to set up a nativity scene. He got permission from the Pope, and he was able to set up a nativity scene for the very first time and popularized Christmas caroling. Um, so it's, it's getting going a little bit, but, you know, there's only so much that we can do with some of these sources. I don't know how we could describe medieval Christmas at the Johnson's house. Right, but you're getting to the initial commercialization of the Christmas concept and the Christmas tale. Well, certainly once we get that nativity scene up there and we start getting Christmas caroling and we start having these enormous feasts in which we're feeding some of the poor, um, we're getting closer to certainly what was going to start to happen in the Victorian period. It was until Oliver Cromwell canceled Christmas, of course. Yeah, well, that was, a lot of that certainly has, has something to do with the emergence uh, and the strictures of Church of England, the Anglican Church, sure. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, moving on from there? What about in other parts of the world, in the non-English-speaking world? What I mainly looked at was England so far, England and America. I mean, we do know, for example, I looked um, at the history of the Christmas tree, as many of your listeners will know. Um, that would have come from Germany, um, but even then, it's still debated. What's the date? Was it a Renaissance kind of uh, thing, or does it go all the way back to the Vikings? Um, so what I was really looking at mostly was how I got my particular Christmas traditions in America, and so that's why I was concentrating on England for the moment. Clearly, and so how do you weave in uh, that Norse tradition, the uh, the entire Santa Claus imagery, and how does how does that evolve, and at what time does it evolve? Well, the Santa Claus 
is actually really, really fascinating. He's sort of got two stories, doesn't he? Because the more I looked at Santa Claus, the more he actually seemed more of a mystery than Jesus. I mean, especially <laughs> when you think of, like, the sleigh and reindeer and... You know, it's a very peculiar kind of, of character. I did have the great fortune of actually going to the Church of St. Nicholas at Myra, and this is in Lycia, Turkey. And if you or any of your listeners haven't been to Lycia, you should go. There are some fantastic archaeological remains there, and they just you're almost like one of the first travelers there. They're still covered in some bushes, and you really feel like you're discovering a lot of these sites for the first time. But what's there is the 4th century well, um, St. Nicholas was the bishop there in the 4th century A.D., and even though most of the information we have from him um, dates 9th or a little bit later, um, we have his church. And so there have actually been some excavations that have been conducted um, within the last couple of years that at least show us that where St. Nicholas was originally buried, there's some evidence of some oil and some myrrh, which is pretty fun. There was a basin for sacred oil, so it looks like pilgrims up until at least the 11th century A.D., not later. Um, we're actually going, taking sacred oil and bringing them back. And what's really fantastic is not only visiting the church and and seeing what's there, but there's actually been a competition of statues that have been placed and replaced in front of that church. And that actually tells us quite a bit about Santa versus St. Nick, um, depending on who you are. So, for example, in 1981, the town actually put up a bronze statue of Father Christmas. And so there he's got a bag of gifts, a hooded robe. But in 2000, the mayor of Moscow actually um, donated a bronze um, bishop of St. Nicholas. He's standing on a globe. And here you actually have St. Nicholas, not Santa Claus. And so Russian tourists for a long time would come, and the pilgrims would kneel at the base of the statue. And just outside of this church, by the way, lots of Russian, Russian Orthodox right. balls selling all these trinkets. But in 2005, they actually replaced this you know, very solemn bronze bishop of uh, St. Patrick with a very plasticky American Santa Claus. They put them right on the globe. And you can imagine the protests, right? I'm sure that the town thought lots of tourism, but, you know, the Russians certainly weren't as happy. And so, actually, it's only been in 2008 that the town actually decided to replace plastic Santa, and they actually have Turkish Santa. So he's made out of fiberglass, and the actual sculptor, this Turkish man, said that this is the authentic Lycian Santa, who looks like a Turkish man, a Turkish Santa, even though the Turks, to my knowledge, didn't even get to Anatolia until about the 11th century, right? <laughs> but, you know, if you'd actually been visiting this church, you could almost witness, you know, how do we negotiate, you know, St. Nicholas versus Santa, um, you know, how are people sort of working through these images um, throughout the world? Um, but the Santa Claus that we actually know of, really, the history of him is pretty well known by everybody because he is going to be sort of the invention of Victorian literature. It's Washington Irving, it's Charles, well, Charles Dickens is sort of giving us our modern Christmas traditions. But, you know, you're going to get the Coca-Cola can. And so really you're, you're right. had, you know, so, so Santa as we know him is actually pretty new. Pretty new, and Santa didn't didn't even exist before Victoria became Queen of England in 1837. Right. And we'll be back with our very fascinating discussion on the archaeology of Christmas with uh, Dr. Michael Laffey right after these words. 
Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still, nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. Creating Achilles' Shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. And this is Joe Schilderine back with our very special Christmas Day show. Uh, we are talking about the archaeology of Christmas, the legends of Christmas, and our special guest, Dr. Michael Laffey, who is a uh, assistant professor of classics at Washington Lee and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, is basically giving us a narrative on not just the archaeological uh, traditions, and, but also the interpretive traditions of how the various uh, elements of the Christmas uh, belief system and the, the, the Christmas tradition evolved essentially in very disparate locations. We originally talked about um, the nativity and the origins of the nativity and and that tradition stemming back to uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans and prior to that the significance of the solstice as, as uh, an indication of the cyclicity of a variety of different uh, uh, patterns of, of adaptation, if you will, and converging on the uh, the, the Christ uh, the Christ tra- tradition and um, 
then the uh, Greeks and the Romans sort of turning it into almost a bacchanalian ritual and a festival, and then, of course, the figure of Christ himself uh, that evolved into a more somber series of developments well into the medieval period and beyond, and then along come the Victorians, here's Santa Claus, and why don't you take it from there? Well, exactly right. So in the Victorian period, here comes Santa Claus. And so Washington Irving is going to give us this. And there's a very, very famous sort of um, Coca-Cola, um, Condé um, Nast, Thomas Nast, sorry. Um, Thomas right. Nast gives us some illustrations. And then it's, it's amazing when you think of how recent these things are. I think of, for example, in my own childhood, too, you know, I never realized Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was so new. You know? (laughs) And so this is what we're looking at is really Charles Dickens is the one in A Christmas Carol in 1843. He's the one who finally, after post-Cromwell Christmas, I think, even though Christmas was reinstated in England, I think it was still a fairly staid matter. And then it really starts picking up again when Charles Dickens sort of gives it this sort of more secular vision of Christmas. I mean, Jesus, Santa actually doesn't play much of a role in there either. Um, but it almost becomes like a social um, uh, social justice Christmas um, in some ways. But we start picking up steam pretty quickly. So it's 1843 is when we're getting our first Christmas cards. They're not really interested as much in the nativity. Our Christmas trees actually start coming after 1841 when Queen Victoria starts using them. And here in the United States after 1850, um, Christmas trees start picking up as well. And so we start on that secular side to really start building up steam. And by 1870, we finally have Christmas as a federal holiday for the first time. I actually think during all the Civil War, Christmas was not a federal holiday. And really? Many, it's incredible, isn't it? It is. It is. Oh, yeah. so, so during the Civil War, Christmas was not celebrated. It was, well, it certainly wasn't a federal holiday. I mean, you were free to celebrate it. But there, was no, no, so, but there wasn't the sense of Christmas is the number one, you know. And I think we're building up steam towards that, um, I think, to a degree. And so I think what happens is as we get into our own time period, we have this great sort of Victorian tradition of this is what your Christmas should be like. And we've been building upon that side of the equation quite a bit, much of the Victorian Christmas traditions aren't necessarily inventions. I think a lot of them with the big feasts and getting families together, this is really echoing back through the sort of winter solstice desire to be around right. a fire and, and you know, um, exchange gifts and cards and things like this. And so if you have that also alongside the nativity celebrations, now you can really start to see why there's such a tension in America where some people... Uh, might feel that their version of Christmas isn't being respected, or the true Christmas is X. And really, and, and, Christmas, and that's true. And that's yeah. true in many, many sectors. My question sure. to you, though, is how does the Vatican look at this? You know, oh, you know something? I was just reading something about this. What was I reading? I won't be able to answer that intelligently. I want to say no, no, no. I mean, how do we conceptualize that? I mean, how do we see that that tradition? Because clearly, I mean, the papacy is involved in in, in this major celebration. And how do they look at these various convergent streams of belief and myth and legend and archaeology coming from so many diverse sources? And all of a sudden, we have this real hodgepodge of non-connected 
uh, evolving events that that converge on Christmas. I mean, how do they look at that, and and how how do they they even visualize it, and and, and uh, are they sitting there very stone faced looking at what's happened to our Christmas kind of a thing? <laughs> I don't know if they are. There was a quote by Saint, our last Pope. He said something about Christmas. I'm sorry, I'm not able to remember what it was. Because this is one of the things I was thinking about. No, I can't remember now. That's all right. I mean, but again, it's it's such an odd amalgam. And if you look at various parts of the world, even the symbolism that you see, say, in Africa or in parts of the Middle East is so different from what we see here in the United States and North America. And even to some degree in, 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 in the UK, they have totally different traditions. And I suppose right. it's all been regionalized. Right, right. Makes sense. Well, and what's also kind of fun is fun in sort of a intellect anthropological way is when you actually see people trying to create traditions. There's that elf on a shelf thing that's going on right. in America. And so somebody, you know, said you should buy that and make it your tradition. I was like, that's make true. it a tradition. Right? And then I also think about Black Friday. So when how long has that been the number one shopping day? It's like two thousand three or four. It was like yeah, yesterday exactly. it's, to me. It's, it's about ten years old. That's yeah, correct. But, but you know, the, you know, some of my students, you know, to them, that seems like that's been a tradition. And then I hear, to tradition, we have to go out and kill ourselves on Black Friday. Right, like, right okay. that's true. But if you were, if, if you were going to be asked, say, let me put a question to you: What are the archaeological symbols of Christmas? What would be your answer to that? My answer to that is. I mean, it depends on where you live, but there are, and the time period in which you are living. But basically, I think that even what archaeology sort of shows us, and studying the ancient history shows us, is that even if the nativity had not been assigned, say, to December 25th, we would still be having a huge party. And the reason is because throughout much of our history, these what we call Christmas celebrations, we can call them solstice celebrations, have really been celebrations and expenditures of funds and getting together with family and and being associated with light and fire as a way to sort of get through the deepest, darkest night that we're going to have. And what's interesting is how do we adjust to this today when, as modern Americans say, we no longer look up in the sky. For ancient societies, this made sense. Is the sun going to come back? Am I, are the stores of my food actually going to, you know, um, survive this this um, this weather? Whereas, you know, when I ask my students, you know, what phase is the moon in today? Um, right. They don't know. Or the third brightest. So this is this is what's sort of interesting. Is I think archaeologically it sort of gets us up to why we have a party and why this particular time of year um, has been celebrated for so long. Um, but it will be interesting that once we've sort of divorced ourselves from the heaven as we have now, um, whether or not Christmas is going to sort of go off um, in a totally different tangent here for modern America. So, so really, archaeologically, it's almost open season. I mean, you could almost track it back to the Paleolithic and the origins of fire and right. uh, then the convergence of... of uh, the, the megaliths and the alignments of 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 those megaliths and 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 subsequent stone and wood structures that informed on the seasonality associated with stars and that 
eventually it just became sort of a melting pot of traditions that are in so, to some degree ethnically based and to right. some some degree attributable to evolutionary developments in the human condition and they all kind of converge at the same place right. and then because of ethnic diversity then they become adapted locally to the point where anthropologically this is one of the richest studies you could possibly oh. pursue really Oh, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. But I would agree. I would say you can take the the origin of the winter solstice celebrations and observances. As soon as you start having agriculture and you need to know exactly when planting season, harvest season, things like this, that is when we're going to start celebrating some version of what we do today as Christmas. How do you see it evolving? I mean, going forward, like you say, this whole uh, Black Friday craze, which goes back, like you say, um, you know, 10 years within our memory, and then all of a sudden, 20, 30 years down the road, that's going to be a fixture in, in, in tradition, and, and who knows what people are going to say in terms of that interpretive potential and how it, got, uh, how it, it became part of our ethos, if you will. I know, it's funny. It's like Christmas is about to eat our whole calendar. I remember I was watching, you know, we're now on Thanksgiving night, stores get to be open so we can attack it for Christmas. And, you know, sometimes I'm watching the news and really all you see are the sort of negatives about Christmas, all this spending. And, you know, when I think about when we get excavated, they're going to know our Christmas because we increase our garbage output by 20%. Oh, of course, right. Yeah. So there's going to be just this strata of just like plastic Right. And, thing, and things that are not biodegradable, so they're even going to be um, inordinately represented in the archaeological record as such, and then it's oh. going to be difficult. Of course, we will have the benefit of, of a literary tradition and, and accounting and records, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you're right about that. Oh, it's going to be um, fantastic. An archaeologist a thousand years from now will be ecstatic, especially if there's a dark age and we lose all of our electronica so you can't read any of our stuff. But, you know, one of the things that I think of is I, I see all of these sort of um, uh, shots against Christmas that way. But, you know, when you actually ask people, what do you think about, you know, when you think about Christmas, they're still connected with, you know, their family and with children. The, the focus on children actually is pretty recent. That's a Victorian Charles Dickens sort of um, move that I don't think we saw in earlier periods. And, you know, when I think of my favorite Christmases, they're always going to be when I was four, five, six, seven. And I don't, even though you can say, look at all of this horrible um, uh, waste of spending and all this stuff, that's usually not what I think of with Christmas. You still think about family. And so I have a feeling that probably will stay. What might sort of move around is, is how we celebrate that, maybe financially, or I don't know what's going to happen with that. Are there any unusual Christmas traditions that strike you as being especially having a special longevity or having survived, say, uh, some of the more recent permutations? Um, that, have, that have surprised me? No, that have survived these permutations and long-standing. What, what are the, some of the more long-standing Christmas traditions that we know about? Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because when you think of... If you made a list of Christmas traditions, you would think of things like Christmas trees and yeah, wreaths. Yeah, and, yeah, that's all still pretty recent. That's all still Victorian period. And so the longer traditions are still going to be things like feasting and make sure you have a fire around you. you know, and what about celebration of Christmas in the warmer climates? Uh, is there anything unusual about that? 
You know, it's really funny. So I spend my um, my summers in Greece, and so I've spent a few years um, in Greece doing research year-round as well. And two things struck me. Number one, they get snow so infrequently in Athens that when you get yeah. an inch, the whole city stops and they take adorable photos, and the snow's only going to last another two hours. But what I've been watching over these last 15, 16 years um, that I've been visiting is the arrival of Santa Claus. And... What's really struck me is that, to my knowledge, Mrs. Claus has yet to arrive. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so they've taken that part of, and you can see how this goes. I think it was after World War II where, you know, the American Santa really started to become a more globalized image. Right. And there are even countries, you know, like Japan or China, where there's a part of our Christmas, not the nativity, perhaps, but the Santa aspect really does have a lot of things that are very appealing. And so it you does. see why it makes sense why, yeah, a tree in your... I mean, I have a wreath right now my wife gave me in my office. It smells wonderful. I would have never thought to put it there. And, <laughs> and I will tell you that in my own lifetime, I have seen all of a sudden Santa and Christmas imagery appear in parts of the world where they have never be- appeared before. Right. And I think that's a part of globalization, and it's, it's part of sort of the, the shrinkage of the world, and possibly even the search for happiness in a more cosmic sense, and trying to bring symbols that are universally understood and universally positive that, that create very positive imagery, and possibly even look towards a hopeful sign for peace on Earth and, and the types of traditions and, and uh, not even platitudes, but aspirations that we all have looking forward. So maybe well, it's all a good thing. And, and it's a positive development uh, going forward. I think so, and I think that is the answer to why 80% of non-Christians in America celebrate Christmas and why 95% of Americans celebrate Christmas is that's sort of what's attracting them, you know? I, I think that's true. I do, yeah. And so it makes sense why that part of Christmas is what's wildly popular throughout the world, and it sort of makes sense why, you know, the um, town of Myra in Turkey decided a plastic Santa might actually be great outside the church of St. Nicholas. <laughs> the move made sense, even though it horrified, you know, the many of the people who really wanted to observe the more um, bishop aspects of St. Nicholas. Yeah. So I actually think um, we may actually, because of this globalization, this is also what's interesting, is we might actually be stuck with Santa as we know him now. Because usually with these rituals, there's sort of this moving river of changes where it's a slow, gradual thing. But I wonder now that Santa in this particular guise, as we know him as Americans, now that it's been exported and sent everywhere, if now that just means that's the way your Santa is going to be frozen. You know? And on that very positive note, uh, I want to thank my very special guest, Michael Laffey, for um, joining me on this very, very sort of lighthearted, but nevertheless very intriguing and positive uh, presentation and discussion on the archaeology of Christmas. Thank you very much, Michael, and we look forward to, uh, to uh, broadcasting to all of you next week. Thank you and good evening. Great. Well, thank you very much. It was great fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.